Hi, welcome to Commercial Real Estate Eyes Wide Open podcast. This weekly podcast is led by me, Ann Hambly, and we cover inside information that's not always available readily in the commercial real estate uh, market. I am very happy today to have Barney McCauley, who I've known for a while in the industry, uh, as a speaker. And Barney is with Edge. I'm going to let Barney actually do an introduction of himself here just for a quick second. So you get a feel for who he is if you don't already know him. And then we'll launch right into our topic today, which is going to be a little bit around retail. So Barney, give a give a two minute intro of you, you and your background and where you what you do. And always good to hear from you and I'm looking forward to this conversation. So this year I celebrated my 40th anniversary in commercial real estate. I started in New York, had a large real estate fund. I went, they moved me to Denver and then Dallas 30 years ago. I've been on the principal side. I've been on the brokerage side. I've been a consultant and I've focused on office, multifamily, industrial. But the last 20 years or so, I've been focused on retail with a concentration on the mall space. I work at Edge Partners. We, I have uh, offices across the country, Miami, Dallas, Austin, Houston, Phoenix, and LA. We represent over 250 tenants, which is an unusual complement to my business. And we've sold over $6 billion worth of commercial real estate as a brokerage firm. Um, that's sort of my background, Ann. How are you doing? How is your world coming out of this pandemic? Well, yeah, things are calming down a little bit after the pandemic. And I'll tell you, we, you know, you turn the news on today and all you see is bad news everywhere you turn. So what I'm hoping you can get with get a share with us on the all the sorry, all the listeners on the podcast here is what are you seeing that's good in retail? And I know you said just a little bit ago, your background has all different kinds of property types. I primarily, whenever I think of retail, I think of Barney McCauley. So let's focus on retail. And what are you seeing good that's in retail? So for the last four or five years, there's been nothing but bad news related to malls. So I thought I'd spend a moment talking about some success stories in the mall world, and then talk about something that Ann and I have worked on together and that she's been a really great asset on and that um, it seems like the women are leading the charge in this, which uh, even as a guy, I shouldn't be very surprised. So I'm going to talk about real briefly about eight malls that have really tremendous success stories and that uh, and then just and so to tell people that there are there is good news out in the mall space. There was an open-air mall in Ocala, Florida that we purchased. It was 30% occupied when we closed on it. We purchased it from the bankruptcy court, and it had been a terrible loan for Bank of America. And we were able to take it from 30% leased to 90% leased. We were able to more than double the value of the asset by focusing on different sort of uses for the property. We brought in a eye surgery center. We brought in a tech firm. We had retail users also, but we were able to make a real mix 
of the property in uses, and it became a, it was in a tertiary market, but it became the dominant center in the market because of the different uses. And you'll see as I go through this list that there's no one answer to any mall, but I mean we bought it at 16 million and sold it at 40 million. So it was a quite a success. Elkhorn Mall is in Tucson, Arizona. When we got involved, the inline space was completely vacant and the anchor pennies were looking for a new site. We demolished the inline space, turned it into, a, and the value was about, was about 15 million bucks. When we, we demolished the inline space, put another 15 million into it, and sold it to uh, Stan Kroenke for 81 million. This was because of the rent roll that we were able to place in the tent, in the center, and the, uh, you know, we replaced a vacant Dillard's with a Burlington coat, we replaced a vacant Macy's with a Walmart, and then we filled in Ross and some other higher real draw users users that built on the cross-border traffic that Tucson gets to generate. Obviously a very successful deal for our clients. Um, more recently, uh, a mall in Cary, North Carolina, Cary Town Center, was purchased in 2019 by Turnberry, and it was, they did a bunch of heavy lifting, getting zoning approved, but it was purchased in 2021 by Epic Games for $94 million. So more than doubling their money in just a few years. Now, give them credit, they did a good amount of work. In Silver City Gallery in Taunton, Massachusetts, um, Thibodeau companies out of Boston purchased it for seven and a half million, also from the bankruptcy uh, steps, and then emptied them all out. And they sold it last year for to make industrial use to to Portman out of Atlanta for seventy five million. So that's ten times X. A pretty good story in an area that's supposed to be just through full of. Uh, really bad news. Also, there's actually three of these deals are in Massachusetts, which tells you that the, when you have good household incomes and density and a growing economy, these mall reimaginings can be more successful. In uh, last, in 2019, the uh, Eastern Real Estate purchased Greendale Mall in Worcester, Mass. And they ended up selling it. They bought it for approximately $6 million and sold it for approximately $60 million to Amazon. Um, it's a great location for a logistics center. It's right off the highway. The mall's users had died, and so it went to a, a whole different sort of direction. Also in Massachusetts was Watertown Mall was purchased for a by a for 130 million by Alexandria REIT. They're a life science REIT and they Watertown is just a little ways from Harvard and MIT and they're not going to use this mall for retail. They are going to convert it into a life science K 
campus. And, but it was a big win for the original investors in Watertown Mall. Um, Let me ask you a question, Barney. Shoot. Before, yeah, so it sounds like, and this is very interesting, it sounds like um, there's not, sometimes people tend to think, well, what are we going to do with a mall, right? And I know that kind of sounds silly, but you cut, you start hearing themes of things that people are going to do with malls. But what it sounds like you're describing is it really, like all other real estate, it depends on the location, the need for the general area, and then sort of assessments done on the best use of that location. And maybe it's still a mall, you know, but that's kind of interesting how your, your stories are lining up like that. So each mall has a different path. And at Edge we look at what opportunities the malls present. Now, some malls don't present a lot of opportunities. They're in a bad location. There's some complications from the anchors. The city's not cooperative. So there's really, you know, as a lender, you probably just need to sell it as you, soon as you can. But other malls, like the four I just described, present unique opportunities. There's... Um, and each one's a little bit different story. Um, Hilltop Mall in Richmond, Arizona, Richmond, California, is in a very tough neighborhood. Richmond, you know, was one of the top 25 cities for murders per 100,000 people. But from the top of the J.C. Penney's, you can see the Transamerica Tower. So it's in a phenomenal location, and it's you know like 70 acres. So it was purchased for $22 million in 2019, and a lot of effort was put in, and another $25 million was spent, but then it was sold to ProLogix, Pro that is going to do a major mixed-use development, for $117 million. So again, more than doubling the initial investors' uh, contributions to it. Um, those are sort of just some of the better stories of, that are going on in the mall world. Now, I kind of teased a little earlier on about something Anne has been really active in and uh, really supportive and in, in something that I've been trying to, uh, to mentor along. So in commercial real estate, 80% of the senior executives look like me. 14% look like Ann, and 1% is a person of color. So that's not good for real estate for like four major reasons. And Ann is, one is only 26% of college graduates are white males. So if we keep hiring the same people, we're not going to have a fully talented team because we're, it's like University of Texas is recruiting football players just from Dallas and they're not getting anybody from Oklahoma or Louisiana or Austin or Fort Worth. It's just not going to be as good a team. Two, most of the places big institutions want to invest in, New York, Boston, DC, Seattle, San Francisco, LA, the sexy six, 
half of them are minority majority cities. You throw in Chicago, Dallas, Atlanta, Phoenix, all of a sudden you see, you know, more than half of the top 20 cities are minority majority. So if we invest in these cities, but we're not reflective of their populations, we're going to get to city council and have all sorts of conflicts that we don't need to have. If our team was more diverse, we'd probably be hitting what the community wanted and getting less resistance. Three, 23% of all institutional real estate investments are made by pension funds. They are the largest investor in commercial real estate. So these investment funds are the exact opposite makeup as real estate is. If you look at Cal Sturs, their investment board has two people that look like me and nine people that don't. So there's always this friction between the pension fund advisor and the pension funds because they come from a different vantage point. And if you have no one on your team that is reflective of the teachers from Chicago or the, or the Dallas police and fire, you're going to have conflicts. But really, the most important reason is money. Uh, McKinley did a study in 15 and then updated it in 18. It's called Developing Through Diversity. And what it shows is if you have a more diverse workforce, you have a 20, if you have a generally more diverse workforce, like Ann and I working together, you have a 22% of higher EBITDA. If you have a gender and ethnically diverse workforce, you have a 33% probability of higher wow. EBITDA. If you do not have a diverse workforce, you have a 50% probability of being in the lowest earning group within your industry. Now, I placed 11 people that were uh, not that are not well represented in the commercial real estate industry in 2020. And Anne helped me. She hired five of those people. And she brought them into her team. She introduced them to the CMBS market. She explained how real estate works. And it was much, it was a contract gig, but it was much easier for me to help them get to the next step. And, you know, at other firms after they had had the experience and the expertise and mentoring that Ian was able to give them. And I have done some volunteer work with Project REAP. It's a real, real estate uh, uh, apprentice program. And many of those candidates, that the people that I met through that program, they give a 10-week session with uh, 20 seminars to introduce people to development, real estate finance, uh, property management, property accounting, so people can get an idea of what real estate offers. And it's a great program. Like in Dallas, they had 300 applicants and only accepted 30. And they, they people actually had to pay for to be part of it. So it really is 
a great program and with people like Ian helping people make that next step. A lot of these folks really want to get into real estate and they have accounting undergrads, or finance undergrads, or they've worked at the city. So they're really talented people. They just don't know what door to knock on to get into the industry. And with folks like Ann giving them opportunities, it really allows them to take that first step. And now these people are at, uh, you know, Avis and Young, Invesco, um, all the different major firms in, in around Dallas where you'd want your son or daughter to start out. So I really want to, and I, it's very interesting that Ann was so helpful, but I'm noticing that female entrepreneurs are much more supportive mm. and much more accepting of diversity in the workforce. Yes, because they've already worn those shoes, shoes before. What do you think, Ann? What do you think the reason is? Yeah, no, no. I, I, and th first of all, thank you for, um, you know, saying all that. I, I was very happy to um, have the opportunity to work with those people that you did send to me. And uh, yeah, I think because we grew up, for me, I really appreciate opportunities like that because, of course, I grew up in a, and am still in a business that is mostly, um, you know, the general population doesn't look like me. So um, it, it's, I, I, I think we all need an opportunity to just get in the door and show what we can do. And then, you know, we'll find that diversity will just um, uh, probably be a, a natural part of our day. You don't have to think about it, you know. So I um, appreciate that, Barney. And listen, I, I loved hearing your stories. Those are It's a positive, positive story. I love hearing good things that are happening uh, on the retail front. We need as much good news as we can get in today's world. So um, I uh, appreciate you spending your time today with us on this podcast and um, we'll, you know, we'll stay in touch and we'll send you a, a copy of the, of the link once it's ready. But thanks again, Barney, for your time today. Appreciate it. Thank you, Anne. I really appreciate the opportunity that you presented to me.